welcome once again to Raging and Eating. This is Rossi, better known as Chef Rossi, owner of the Raging Skillet in New York City. And how the heck, I'm getting polite, how the heck are you? Did I mention I spent a lot of time in North Florida when I was growing up? Yes, I did. Kind of a crazy way to grow up, so... We lived on the Jersey Shore, Shore, and, um, you know, most of the time, I wasn't so impressed with living in New Jersey. No offense to New Jersey, but when I was a kid, I just sort of felt like there was a better place for me. But the summer on the Jersey Shore, now that is really Shangri-La, because we have some pretty darn fantastic beaches. I mean, really great beaches. Um... Although I do remember the water being really rough and the undertoes really scary. And as an adult, I've kind of confirmed that. So maybe that's why there's so many surfers that head out to Asbury Park, New Jersey. But I digress. Anyway, so I was all set for a whole summer of fun on the Jersey Shore. But my parents wound up buying some rinky-dink Uh, bungalows, like a a piece of land with four little rinky-dink bungalows on it. And it was in Panama City, Florida. Now, Panama City, Florida then, um, and I think today as well, was known as the Redneck Riviera. So Panama City, Florida in the 70s, well, that is really, you might as well have been in the heart of Kentucky, you know, as deep in the deep south as you could get. No offense to the deep south, but I'm saying it wasn't like Florida, like we're going to Miami, you know, like our relatives, our Jewish relatives were always going to Miami. My uncle Harry got a condo in Miami. First time I ever heard the word condo was when my uncle Harry got a condo in Miami. And so I just kind of summed the whole condo experience up like that. A condo is when your Uncle Harry gets a condo in Miami. You know, very Jewish. Anyway, I'm digressing again. But even though Miami and Panama City, what is that like? An hour, two hours apart? It's not like it's like 30 hours drive apart, you know. Might as well have been worlds apart. So when we would go visit my Uncle Harry, it'd be like a whole bunch of old Jews sitting on the porch playing cards and eating, of course. And, you know, all this art deco and like sort of a Las Vegas energy. There were like big hotels like the Dunes and they'd have celebrities there. Like, I don't know, sort of like a Frank Sinatra kind of scene, you know. I don't remember ever seeing a sign for Frank Sinatra, but it was kind of a Vegasy sort of thing. But when we go to Panama City, Florida, forget it. Like if we went out to get snacks, I remember my mother went to a store looking for something kosher to get, and they tried to sell her pork rinds. I don't think so. And we were a little bit out of gas. We arrived. Um, we sort of, I guess we fit in. We arrived in my dad's yellow Ford pickup truck with a hermit shell kind of camper on the top, the El Dorado camper on the top. And there we would go driving around in the camper. So we needed to get gas. We pulled into a gas station in Panama City, Florida. And 
My father went in to pay the guy. My mother went in to use the bathroom. My sister went in to search for romance comic books. My brother went in to bother my mother. You know, the way my family rolls. And they left me, the guard of the family, out to watch the truck. Slava, stay out there and watch the truck. That's my Yiddish name. Anyway, so I'm watching the truck, and the gas station guy is pumping the gas, and he keeps looking at my tushy. Yes, he does. He keeps looking at my butt. And then he keeps looking at the top of my head, and back and forth, butt, head, butt, head, butt, head. Of course, that's a great word there. He was kind of a butt head. Um, I guess I was about eight years old, and we had been learning to try to respect your elders and that kind of thing. But also, um, I was kind of an accent sponge. My mother and I always had that in common. We would absorb the accent. To this day, I never quite shook off the Florida accent I got in Panama City, Florida. You know, when it comes back every time I talk about Panama City, Florida, just like Florida is never Florida, it's Flada, F-L-A-T-A. But I'm digressing all over the place. Anyway, so this guy's checking out my butt and my head and my butt and my head. And finally, I turn around and put my hands on my hips. And I say, Mr., what in the hell are you looking at? And I guess my mother had said something, obviously Yiddish, but I hate this guy, certainly didn't speak Yiddish, but she'd said something that made him understand that we were Jewish. So um, maybe she was looking for kosher food in this rinky-dink gas station, who knows. But he said, well, I hears tell your mama says you's Jewish. So I was looking for your horns and your tail. Where in tarnation you hide them things? And this guy was really being friendly. He didn't think he was insulting me in the least. He just really wanted to know where we hid, you know, where I hid my horns and my tail. You know, so there were a lot of things I felt like saying, of course, you know, you want to call me the devil, I'll show you a devil. And maybe I'd pull down my pants and fart on him as um, people in my family like to do. Well, not the pulling down the pants part, but that was reserved for my brother. But I thought about it for a second, and um, and I also thought, well, he didn't really seem like a bad guy, just an idiot, you know. So I said, well, we left them in New Jersey, and that satisfied him. He was like, oh, okay. And I'm sure he went home and told his family, do you know that Jews, when they travel away from their home, they take off their horns and their tail and they leave them in their house and then they, I guess they put them back on when they get home. This guy, he was, you know, pure ignorant, you know. I'm sure he spent the next 10 or 20 years thinking that that's what, that's what happened. It was pretty funny to think about now. But, of course, I was young then and I didn't realize that people who are really, really, really ignorant and really actually think that Jewish people have horns and a tail. Unfortunately, they also vote, and they're very, very easy to talk into terrible things. And that's how um, dictators rise. That's how, I'm imagining that's how Adolf Hitler came to power, was that he got a whole bunch of poor, depressed, fairly ignorant people to just believe that he was gonna make their life Shangri-La, you know? And all they had to do was kill a bunch of Jewish people, you know? 
So they're bouncing all over the place. And I don't even know why I'm talking to you about this and why I was thinking about Panama City, Florida. But I just, I guess I just was. You know, I also found out a whole lot of people in Florida listen to my show. And that made me feel really happy. So shout out to you, Gainesville, Florida. I'm giving you a big shout out. And you know what? Maybe it also came up because there's been a lot of crappy things happening in Florida. Like we got this guy, and I'm not even going to say his name, but you know who I'm talking about, who, you know, seems like he's following the playbook of Adolf Hitler. Really is kind of scary. He's got a whole bunch of people thinking he's, first he got a whole bunch of people to think he's great by telling everyone, don't wear a mask during COVID. So a whole lot of people died in the first wave of COVID. Not saying they still aren't dying, but that first year, forget about it. There's like a million people died or something. I don't know the number, but a lot of people were dying. And the only thing you could do to protect yourself at that point, we didn't have the vaccination, was to wear a mask and to not go into crowds and to not catch this terrible illness. It really is and was not fun, you know. But he was like, oh, don't wear a mask. And not only did he say don't wear a mask, he was like, and if you tell people they have to wear a mask, that's against the law. We are a mask-free place, and we are not going to close, and we're not going to put a mask on. And I remember my girlfriend and I, in the heart of COVID, I helped her drive back from Florida, Florida, and we wound up spending a little time in North Florida, not in Panama City, but in North Florida. And we went into a restaurant, and we wanted to eat outside, and there were no outside tables because it was a nice night. And so we were sort of went near the window and we wore our mask. And right away, these people probably hung out with that gas station attendant, started looking at us and saying, oh, you must be New Yorkers. And this one guy said, you're the reason that COVID came to Florida. You all carried it on your back from New York. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, make up your mind if you want to like go and beat up Chinese people saying it came from China and it's their fault. You want to also go and beat up New Yorkers and say they carried it on their back from New York. I mean, all that is disgusting. So I think you all need to go and check yourself, check your brain out. But I just thought it's still here, that kind of crazy ignorance. Like, come on, you know, I don't know where COVID came from. I know it's a horrible thing. It ruined a lot of lives. It killed a lot of lives. But I do know that in the heart of COVID, before the vaccination came out, if you didn't wear a mask in a crowded place, you were just playing Russian roulette. But I digress. Now, what was my point? My point is to just be aware. Read newspapers. Well, they don't have newspapers anymore. But, you know, stay open to, the, to what's going on. Don't close yourself into some weird little funnel and think crazy things and follow dictators. Keep your own mind, you know? So a lot of people I know are refusing to go to Florida. People of color are refusing to go to Florida because Florida does not, simply does not want the same guy, doesn't want them to teach anything about what's happened to black Americans. Doesn't Doesn't want school kids to know what we did you know, slavery and oppression and racism and all the terrible things we've done. They don't want to teach about that. They don't want to teach the history of black Americans. So 
that's a crappy thing because we did a lot of terrible things. I am not taking credit for this when I say we, but America, the United States, did a lot of really supremely crappy things to people of color, and you cannot hide it. So, meanwhile, trying to like refuse it for it to be taught, come on. And then a lot of gay Americans, gay people, are not wanting to go to Florida because don't say gay. I mean, what is that about? It's like saying, don't, na- don't say white. How about this? Don't say white. You can't say white anymore. You know, how would you feel? Anyway, I hate that crap. So I'm sorry if I'm on a roll and maybe you just wanted to hear a show about food. But, you know, I'm in a mood. So forgive me. So the moral of this little sermon, and it's not a sermon, it's just me kvetching, is, you know, racism and ignorance and homophobia and following dictators and all that crap. You know, you think a lot of this stuff like ended with Hitler or in North Korea or in Russia, but it can be right here in the United States of America. Dictators rise, democracies fall. You know, all it takes is a blend of fear, ignorance, and hate. Now, that makes a terrible sauce. Fear, ignorance, and hate. Maybe a little bit of depression thrown in there. Forget it. How do you think Mr. Adolf rose up? He just blended that up. So did quite a few other people in this country, too. So don't think we're immune. So I would just ask you, if you're making a decision in your life, think about it. Is it based on fear? probably a wrong decision. Is it based on hate? Definitely a wrong decision. Decisions. Decision, I can't even say it. Is it based on ignorance? Well, you might be too ignorant to know, but why don't you just read up and before you vote, how about you read? Read before you vote. Talk to people who are not part of your party. If you're a lifelong, die-hard Republican, and your family and your generations and generations of your family has been. But this guy who's running for office is sounding a little different, and he's got you excited because it's he's like kind of asking you to break the rules and have a little fun. He's got you feeling jazzed up. But what he's talking about is oppressing people or hating people or, you know, attacking people or anything like that. And you're all jazzed up and excited and you want to follow him almost to war or battle or anything else. Maybe just take a minute. You're being motivated by fear, by hate, by ignorance, you know, by a little bit of depression. Yeah, take a moment. Put yourself in check because you might just be launching another really crappy dictator. You know what I mean? There, I really was on a roll. What can I say? So I'm going to lighten things up a little bit because it's a little too heavy, right? Well, life is heavy, so suck it. (laughs) That wasn't friendly, but come on. Terrible things are happening every day. We can't hide from it. We really can't hide from it. So what I'm thinking about lately is this world is very different than the world I grew up in. So the world I grew up in, when I would come home from school, I would run around in the grass in the backyard I would go for walks in my neighborhood. I'd go to the park and go on the swings and go down the slide. And I'd go hang out at my friend's house and we'd run around in the backyard. We had a river right there in New Jersey and we'd all hang out around the river and try not to get killed and drown. 
but you know, it was outdoors. And then I got a little older, and if I wanted to see a friend, I would call them up and come over and visit, or I'd call them up and we'd talk for like an hour on the phone. You know, actually talking on the phone. And you know, then I got a little older, and along came cell phones that made it easier to talk on the phone. Then I got a little older, and along came smartphones. Well, now, pretty much nobody talks on the phone anymore. You know, and I'm guilty of this myself. I just can't stand talking on the phone because I'm always so busy. It's like I spent an hour on the phone. I'm like, oh, my God, I could have written a book in that hour. That's how it feels. And people just want to just shoot a text message or shoot an email. You know, they don't want to actually take the time to pick up the phone and even order in food. It used to be like a big thing was let's just pick up the phone. I remember the first time I did that. I was in Chelsea, and I was living in a really bad corner. My corner was super dangerous. As a matter of fact, the week I moved in, or the first month I moved in, um, my upstairs neighbor got stabbed and left in the bathtub, and the bloody water ran through the whole building. That was the week I moved in. And a couple weeks after that, some drug dealers set their apartment on fire. They were two doors down from my apartment. And uh, I wound up crawling in on my hands and knees and pulling one of them out before he died of smoke inhalation. That was my very first month living in this apartment, so I'm not exaggerating when I say that was a bad corner. And so when I discovered that the deli downstairs would deliver, I was like, oh my lord, oh my lord. So I'd pick up the phone and I would ask for a bagel, a toasted bagel with cream cheese and a cup of coffee guy a cup of coffee you hear my new york coming out now a cup of coffee and anything else i wanted i'd say and a quart of orange juice and i even would say in a box of tampons please and this little guy would show up with the tampons the orange juice the coffee and the bagel i just thought i am so cosmopolitan look what i just did i ordered that up and i didn't have to deal with the street gang on the corner but now people don't even want to pick up the phone and order food they want to go to seamless or grubhub or whatever so many times I'm at work and I go to Seamless. I order in lunch for the staff because we didn't have time to cook. So we're a catering company. We're cooking for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. But we don't always have time to make staff lunch. Isn't that funny? And I'm sending a text message because I don't have time to get on the phone. Shooting an email because I don't have time to get on the phone or visit. You know, and so we've lost touch with people. We're out of practice. So I'm trying more and more and more to go back to the way of communication that I had, you know, growing up. Well, not exactly, because the way of communication I, that I had growing up involved a lot of screaming, because my mother screamed, you're stabbing me in the heart. Some people, I have children, and I have reptiles, cold-blooded, unfeeling reptiles. I have snakes. And she would scream. So not like that. Not like my father, who didn't like to talk and just told us to shut up whenever we talked. Well, not like really like that. And not like my sister, who preferred to speak in the voice of a chicken for most of her adult life. And not like my brother, who did terrible things with his nose that were sort of disgusting. You know, well, not like any of that. But I mean, the, just the talking and not replacing it all 
with technology and smartphones and internet. You know what I mean? It's a better way to be. So I think, but anyway, I digress, my dear. So I have been doing an enormous amount of cooking lately. I had just had my marathon week. I talked to you about that last week. Were three weddings and a joy shot. That was my podcast radio show last week. But I've had crazy week of cooking, and I have more coming up. But what I found really validating, so it was it was really one of those try to survive tunnel vision weeks. I know you've had those kind of weeks where I'm showing up for work already exhausted and can hardly walk, and I had a bad fall and saved the chicken satay, but I was all bruised up and just kind of you know trying to survive, you know and right into tunnel vision, but not really, really, really trying, no matter how overwhelmed I was, to not lose the quality of the food, to still add that little extra zing wherever I could. And what was validating was that all three weddings went fantastically, if I do say so myself, but the bride and the groom were thrilled and the parents were thrilled. So that's a special badge of honor. I mean, I love, love, love when my bride and groom are happy, of course. But when the mother of the bride on my Friday wedding is so thrilled that she sends me a private note, how happy she was, and the mother of the bride on my Saturday wedding is so thrilled that she sends me a private note, how happy she was, that's really an extra badge of honors because because mothers of the bride are often very hard to please, harder even than the bride. And when they love you, now you know you did something right. So I'm sending a special shout out to all the mothers of the bride. We love you and we're very, very happy when you're happy. You know what I mean? So my mother never got to be a mother of the bride. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Well, my sister got married, but my sister married this guy who my mother really, really, really didn't approve of in a huge way. And so she didn't go to that wedding. She didn't actually even know about it. My my sister knew my mother wouldn't approve, so she got married in secret and didn't even tell my mother. By the time my mother found out, oh, forget about it. She sat shivered. You know what that is? In the Jewish religion, if you lose an immediate family member, you cover the mirrors so that you won't look at yourself, and you put on slippers, you don't wear shoes, you don't leave the house, you stay and you mourn for a week, and people bring you lots and lots and lots of food. So my mother sat Shiva for my sister because she married this guy. You know, that is something, you know, I don't know what to say, but it's a pretty intense way to grow up. So... She never got to be a mother of the bride. And I guess I'm not going to get to be a mother of the bride because I never had any kids. So, well, there's that. But I did go to the beautiful wedding of my niece, Tova, and the beautiful wedding of my niece, Hannah. And, you know, I'm getting my own way of being a sort of a mother, you know. I love both these girls. And now they're grown women and they have kids of their own. But here I am digressing all over the place. So I'm going to dedicate today's show, though, to Mothers of the Bride because I love you. And you deserve all the love and respect you can get because you raised that little girl and now she's getting married. You know what I mean? 
And if you find yourself supporting someone who's a hate monger, who's rallied you up with fear and hate and fury, I think you better check yourself because you might be launching another Hitler. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. Now, as to food, I don't even know what I want to talk about food-wise. I did so many great things, okay? I made Mama Rossi's meatballs. Did I ever talk to you about meatballs? Well, my mother used to make porcupine meatballs where she would take ground turkey or veal and she would mix it with cooked rice. It's kind of interesting, right? And she would throw in oregano because that was the only seasoning that we ever used, that and paprika and gilt. And she would take the raw meatball and cook it in tomato sauce. And we loved it, but that's not the way I roll. So I knew I needed about 600 meatballs last week. So my process was to get the great, I got to get a great blend from a fabulous butcher and I pay a fortune for it, but it's worth it. This is a short rib, sirloin, and chuck blend. Just a gorgeous chopped meat. And I season it. I do ground coriander, and I do garlic powder and onion powder and paprika and even some Old Bay, which is black pepper and paprika and a few things, and uh, two different kinds of ground pepper and some celery salts and a little bit of oregano and uh, something else. I season the hell out of it. And then I toss in gluten-free breadcrumbs. Not soaked, just toss them in. And I roll the whole thing up. Oh, parsley, I forgot about parsley. Smash the whole thing up. And then Alethea, my wonderful Alethea, rolls it into meatballs. And she rolled about 600 of them. Then we'd take a sheet pan with parchment paper and we put the meatball, lay the meatballs out, and we put it in the oven until they're brown and cooked through. It's like 350 degrees for mm, about 15 minutes, maybe, until they're browned and cooked through. We don't want any raw meatballs. They come out, and that's the end of that, right? Meanwhile, I've made a gorgeous marinara sauce. So I start with crushed or diced tomatoes, a ton of it, and I'm cooking that for a while. And I put in basil, and I put in garlic that I've pureed, cook that for a while. And I put in oregano and thyme and sea salt and salt and black pepper and white pepper. And I cook that forever and ever and ever. And then I give it a little something to sweeten it up with. It's a little bit of balsamic vinegar. I like that in the sauce. And I cook that for a while. And then often I'll give it something to sweeten it up a little more, which might be a little drizzle of maple syrup, believe it or not cook that for a while. I like a little honey or sugar or maple syrup and a tomato sauce to kind of balance it out. I cook that and it's a gorgeous thing and then I just adjust it salt and pepper wise and see what it wants. Sometimes I'll add a scoop of tomato paste too that I've burnt a little bit in a frying pan and whisk that in and I get a really robust gorgeous marinara. So now I have my beautiful sauce and what I do is I take these, um, I guess you would say freezable Tupperware containers, only they're much larger in catering. And I put about an inch of the tomato sauce in the bottom, and I put all my cooked meatballs on top of that so they're soaking up the sauce. I seal it up really well and put it in the freezer. And it, you can keep this for a couple months in the freezer. 
And then when it's party time, the day before the party, take it out of the freezer, take it to the party, and you heat it up. And the way I like to serve it is in a little miniature copper pot where I pour the tomato sauce in the pot, put the cooked meatballs on top, and we skewer it all with a little bamboo skewer. You gotta use a skinny skewer, not a thick one, or it breaks the meatballs. And there you have it. I'll dust it with some fresh herbs. Parsley is nice, chives, thyme, whatever you have. And it goes out as an award-winning, fabulous hors d'oeuvres. Hors d'oeuvre. People loved it. They love Mama Rossi's meatballs. And gluten-free. What do you think of that? All right, I'm all over the map. Hitler, meatballs, oy vey. Anyway, this is Rossi for raging and eating. And as always, food is love and so are you.